Hello and welcome to the Mountain Conversations podcast, the show that celebrates the beautiful planet we call home. Each episode, alongside an expert who is passionate about their subject, we will take you on a journey to get you excited about the topic. This is a show about hope and positivity, and it's my hope that by learning something new each episode about the work of amazing people who dedicate their lives to making a difference, you will be inspired to take action and get involved in the efforts to preserve our beautiful home, planet Earth. I'm Charlie, and this is Mountain Conversations. Welcome back to this next episode. I'm so excited for today's conversation. I am joined by someone whose work I have followed for many years, and I'm sure you will have seen him across your screens as part of the presenting team for BBC's Spring Watch. It is, of course, wildlife TV presenter and conservationist Chris Packham. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for joining me today. A pleasure. A pleasure. Um, could you possibly introduce the topic that we're going to be talking about today? Well, I'd like to talk to you about the way that we um, we uh, look after our domestic animals in the countryside um, on two accounts, really. Our, our domestic pets being the principal one, um, namely in the forms of cats and, and dogs, perhaps a few less cats in the countryside, but certainly some that are having a notable impact. And certainly where I live, many dogs that are having a, a very, very noticeable impact on wildlife populations and uh, and their behaviour. So... Um, I'd like to talk to you about that, actually, because it's something that we could easily address. Uh, there are a lot of dog owners in the UK now, certainly post-lockdown, even more. And uh, as a consequence, we need to sort of change our behaviour a little bit, be a little bit more responsible. Um, it's not a dog's fault, it's the human's fault. So we have to speak to the humans. Absolutely. No, the dogs the dogs are, don't choose to be on the leader off, do they, at the end of the day? I live in North Wales in Snowdonia, and I'm constantly seeing sort of dogs chasing sheep around the mountains and the, the, the wild mountain goats and stuff. So should we start with dogs while we're, while we're yeah. here? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I have two dogs and I live in the National Park. And the National Park is home to uh, populations of, you know, in, important breeding birds. Uh, Around 48% of the birds that breed in the national park here nest on the ground, which means that they're vulnerable to disturbance from uh, ground-based predators. And so we have natural predators here. Of course, we've got foxes and badgers that might take the eggs and young of those birds, but that's all part of a natural ecosystem. But what we also have is a, a surrounding selection of conurbations. We've got Southampton, we've got Salisbury. Uh, we've got Paul and Bournemouth, all of which uh, uh, fringe the new forest. And as a consequence, lots of people like to spend their time walking there with their dogs. And I'm one of those uh, people. But during the breeding season, our populations of snipe, curlew, redshank and lapwing, which have become in recent years um, you know, nationally important, are unfortunately disturbed by uh, dogs which are not under control. And this is... Uh, really growing into quite a serious problem. Now, I think we have to cast our mind back to 25, 30 years when populations of these birds were much greater Mm -hmm. uh, because they were prospering in other parts of our landscape. So they were doing well on farmland. But changes in our agricultural practices have meant that the places like the New Forest and and the places you've mentioned 
in Cumbria have become repositories of, of you know, of, of important repositories of biodiversity and, and refuges for these types of birds. So the, the game has changed. So in maybe two or three generations of dogs that you may have walked in these places, the populations of these birds have significantly declined in the UK. And therefore, it's important that we work harder to protect them where they remain. Um, so that the, the rules have changed from that point of view, whereas in the past, dogs were still disturbing those birds, but the impact they were having on national populations would have been considerably less. Mm-hmm. Now the impacts are, are very serious. Yeah. So here in the New Forest, for instance, um, there are areas where um, many people walk their dogs. We, we know that because of the abundance of people and the abundance of dogs, that there are... 10,000 dog walking hours in the new forest uh, every day. And that's a figure that comes from about 15 years ago. So it's, it's likely to have been significantly increased. Yeah. So what that means is that 10,000 people bring one dog and walk for one hour or the subdivisions of that. They may bring two dogs and walk for an hour and, and, and so on and so forth. So we've got enormous pressure from dog walkers on the new forest. Now, there are some places where you can walk your dog and there are no ground nesting birds and and the risk of disturbance to wildlife is minimal to zero. But there are others where it's very sensitive. Um, And I'm very pleased to say that Forestry England have started to close car parks in order to encourage people to move to different areas during the breeding season, only during the breeding season. And if I walk out of my house now, there are places where there are signs up, very polite notices saying, if you walk your dog here, would you please keep your dog on a lead um, throughout this sensitive breeding season? Um, But very sadly, when I go out, I I see people continuing to run their dogs off the leads. Dogs are disturbing the birds. They put them up, they fly around, they waste their energy. They expose their chicks and young to other generalist predators. Very, very, very occasionally the dogs might predate the young. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's principally disturbance that we're we're interested in here. And the stress that that puts on, on, on these birds. And I haven't even got onto the stock that you mentioned, um, you know, domestic stock. And we know that in the UK landscape, uh, that our pets, our domestic dogs, do enormous damage to, to you know, particularly sheep, um, also cattle as well, of course. Not, and again, it's not that they have to kill them. They do very sadly in some instances kill uh, particularly sheep, um, obviously less so cattle. But if you've got a gestating uh, cow and it's chased by a dog round around a field, um, that's not what it needs and, and, and what it deserves. And, and we have to make sure that we protect our farm stock at, and also our farmers. It's really distressing for our farmers to go into a field and see that, you know, a number of their sheep have been unnecessarily slaughtered by, uh, by someone's pet. That's not acceptable. Now, they may well be compensated, but you can't compensate for the mental distress that the farmers are going through. And the sheep industry in particular, as you know, is beleaguered and, and, and struggling. So the last thing they need on top of that is our dogs chasing them around. So I suppose the simple plea is, is read the signs um, and, and behave properly. Just because you could do it 25 years ago doesn't mean you can still do it now. There are many things that we've changed in, in terms of our social practices in that time. Absolutely. I think I think um, absolutely goes for the countryside, but also um, obviously I live quite near the coast as well. 
I live near the, the seal colony um, at Angel Bay in Llandudno. And the amount of times, not so much on that beach because it's quite difficult to access. It's high, we know the, the viewing area is really high up on the cliffs. But I've seen so many stories recently of, of dog attacks on seals. And, you know, it's just, it's what can we do about it? Are people, are people just not aware? Are they not thinking? What's, what's going on? Well, we, we, I would argue that some of them may not be aware and therefore we have a, a duty to educate them. That's, that's important. But then I would also argue that many people are aware um, because they've read the signs. Mm -hmm. We put the signs up here in the National Park. And I think that we've done quite a good job of communicating the risk that pets, uh, domestic dogs have on on, on farm stock. And when it comes to beaches, where certainly where they're breeding colonies for seals, there are always signs up saying no dogs um, in, in this area. And we know we had that horrendous case on the Thames uh, a, a couple of years ago where uh, a, a seal was close to a footpath. It was eventually killed by a dog. Um, that, that, that's not in any way, shape or form tolerable. Um, the person whose dog it was knew the seal was there um, and would have understood the nature and, and the way that her animal was uh, behaving. Mm. Um, and as a consequence of that, it, it's, 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 not, it's no longer socially acceptable and it should never have been acceptable for your dog to chase, um, let alone damage uh, or kill wildlife. You mentioned ground nesting birds on our beaches. There are so few beaches now which are sufficiently undisturbed for these uh, mainly seabirds, terns, and so on and so forth, wading birds to breed, um, that they need to be rigorously protected. And even on Spring Watch last year, we had a dog that got onto uh, Wild Ken Hill in Norfolk, um, which has its nature reserve, extremely productive. Again, many species breeding there, of, uh, uh, which are nationally important. And, and an uncollared dog got out onto the marsh and wandered around eating Avocet's eggs. Mm. Um, that's not something that we can we can countenance at all. So the message is clear to people. You know, you have a responsibility to look after your dog in terms of its health and happiness and well-being, but it, that also extends to other people. Um, you, you, we don't want our dogs to impinge negatively on other human lives. But at this critical point in our overcrowded, over dog crowded island, we need to make sure that they don't impact negatively on our wildlife too. And that just means a change of behaviour. It means leap, not going to areas. Uh, sensitive areas during the breeding season that would be the best thing mm-hmm. and if you do go there then your dog needs to be on a lead now one of the ambiguities unfortunately is that many regulations say you can bring your dogs there if they are and i quote under control mm-hmm. but uh, you know your definition of under control and mine um, and everyone else's are probably different um and, and i think the only you know definitive way of keeping a dog under control is to have it on a lead basically or to not take it there. And one thing that I find really confusing is that we have nature reserves in the UK and they're designated as such. So their principal purpose is to protect nature, enhance nature. Um, And yet we allow people to take their dogs there. I mean, I've never taken my dogs on a nature reserve. Um, I I love my dogs very much. I love nature reserves very much, but I have to be, I have to reconcile the fact that the two are not compatible. No, no, absolutely yeah. So why not just why can't the NGOs who have the nature reserves and right now it's just look, you know, just man up and, and, and just say, OK, well, I'm really sorry. Times have changed. We don't want dogs on nature reserves anymore. And they do do damage. We see every year on social media dogs killing uh, particularly wildfowl, swans and so on and so forth. Um, and, and this continues. And it, it's 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 madness on, on both accounts. So I think the conservationists really need to, you know, to recognize that in the short term. They, they may have some conflict with some people who refuse to change their behaviour, and that is essentially antisocial behaviour. 
Um, and that's something that we, we would need to manage. Um, and maybe it needs to be mandatory. There are parts of the world where if you're caught with your dog off the lead, you you face an instantaneous on-the-spot fine. Yeah. And as a consequence, guess what? People don't let their dogs off the lead. So I'd rather, be, I'd rather it be educational. I'd rather it be carrot than stick. But there are some places, I think, where people are so irresponsible that it's time to start giving them a wrap across the knuckles. No, absolutely. And I think another thing that um, that comes as a sort of a, a side effect of these of, of dogs in these areas is obviously you get the the poo bags that are left hanging in trees on rocks I've been up Snowdon countless times and I can count tens and tens of bags going up and down the mountain and it just it baffles me like it would just not even come into my mind to do that <laughs> no you're right um it's it's another blight a litter blight on our, our countryside isn't it really it, yes, it, yes. i mean the first thing is dogs um defecating and urinating and again study that was done some time ago here in the new forest showed that the amount of uh, material um, urine and feces that they put into a, a localized environment i.e an area where there are lots of dogs walking every day can have an impact on the botany obviously uh, feces are full of nutrients and they enrich the, the ground and a lot of the soils that we have here in the new forest in particular are poor soils and therefore the plants that grow on them are specialized and grow on nutrient poor soils but after many many years of many many dogs putting you know an enormous amount of poo in in one place we do see changes so pooping and scooping is a good idea using the bags um we have uh, biodegradable bags that we use and those are freely available. So that means that, you know, if they do go into a bin and if that bin then goes into landfill and not to a place where it will be, you know, is potentially recycled, um, that they will break down over time. But of course, take them home. What's the point of putting your poo in a bag and then leaving, leaving it, it there? You've achieved <laughs> nothing. You've made it worse by adding plastic to the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, so just t- take take them home. I will say, though, in defense of some of the people who who get frustrated about the fact that they they pick up their bags, but they, they then obviously don't want to be carrying around a bag of dog poo. They want to dispose of it as quickly as possible, um, that, that, that we need more bins and we need more regular collections from the bins. So there's one area where we walk our dogs um, on a, a dog-friendly beach, no ground nesting birds um, in, in, on the Isle of Wight. Um, there is a dog bin there. In fact, there are two dog bins. Uh, they're always overflowing. They're mm-hmm. not collected. The, the material is not collected regularly enough. So that's the first thing. And then here in the new forest, no bins. No bins at all. So I have to say that I do occasionally see the plastic bags. I think generally the public, when they visit the National Park, are, are pretty good here. I mean, I've seen some on Snowden. I won't say that, you know, people walking in the New Forest, any better people walking in Snowden, I've got, I've got to say. But but it's not, you know, it's not an enormous problem, but you do see it around some of the car parks. But then maybe we should put some bins in for them. Maybe we should stump up to pay for that and pay for their collection, uh, the collection of material as well. You know, that would um, that would help, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I've heard um, I've, I've spoken in the past to sort of rangers at various sort of country parks and w- across the UK. And they've they've told me stories of the deer um, and when, when they've when they've died and they've they've explored the reasons for why they've died. They've actually had these bags inside their stomachs where they've you know, they've, they've been snuffling along eating them they don't know there's a bag surrounding the dog poo um and then yeah it causes causes a whole you know a whole host of problems so yeah I just think again like you said it seems like a simple solution obviously it's probably costly but to put bins to encourage people is just it seems so naturally you know common sense 
Well, yes, and also <clears throat> offering people facilities. And again, more, <clears throat> more carrot than stick would be a good idea. And one of the things that I've tried to promote here in the forest are uh, areas which are enhanced for dog walkers. Therefore, we make the conditions for them better there um, to encourage them to move to those areas. And I believe that we could find areas within the national park where the, the risk of uh, disturbing our ground nesting birds is minimal to zero. Um, and we could enhance the facilities there. So we could improve the qualities of the car parks. So they're not full of um, potholes, which upset people. We could put undercover areas so that when it's raining, people could stand and not get wet. Because a lot of people, um, they like to socialise when they're dog walking and they stop and talk to other people about their dogs and their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so having somewhere dry to stand whilst you're doing that would be good. Um, it's, it's, it's an outdoor environment. The dogs get muddy, uh, certainly during the wintertime. We could have, if we had an undercover area, we could collect the, the rainwater that fell on it. Um, and then we could use that grey water, as we call it, recycled water, um, to wash the dogs. We could have a little dog washing area so you could wash your dog's feet before you put them back in the car. And they took the yeah. mud home to put all over your carpet. And of course, we could have marked dog walking trails, which are well maintained. And we could have those dog um, feces bins there. And I think if we had, if we ringed um, the new forest with a a number of those types of facilities close to the largest conurbations, then people would gravitate there because the conditions would be better for them. Um, And that that would alleviate the pressure on some of the other areas. So, again, I prefer the carrot rather than the stick. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the moment, we've had to introduce a little bit of stick by closing those car parks and putting up those signs and asking people to behave more respectfully with, with wildlife. But at the same time, um, we should be looking for the resources to, um, to, to, to help people who just want to walk their dogs, as I'd like to walk mine, uh, yeah. of course. Of course. Um, you mentioned cats. Can we move on to cats quickly? Because obviously this is something that a lot of people probably don't, don't consider. No, well, in, in urban and suburban areas, the cat population can be very high. Um, they are obviously uh, predators. And we know that in the UK from previous studies, they... They kill about 60 million songbirds in the UK every year, our domestic cats. About 100 million prey items in total. So that would include small mammals, reptiles, um, everything that they, that they kill. Um, let's be really clear from the outset that we're not picking on cats here. We're, we're, we're questioning the way that we as humans keep them. The cats are just doing what they do. Um, they are predators and they, they, and they retain that instinct despite the fact they're domesticated. Um, obviously, in, in rural areas, we have less of a problem because there's a less, uh, high, less high density of, of cats. We have a feral cat issue in some places, and there are projects where people uh, catch them and neuter them. Um, so the population remains stable or over a period of time declines. Uh, we don't have a, a euthanasia policy in, in, in the UK, as we do in some parts of the world, where cats are a very serious problem when it comes to native wildlife. I'm thinking about Australia and New Zealand um, and some of the islands um, where cats have been introduced and, and exterminated and made whole species extinct. Um, but here in the UK, we, we, we do have some of those neutering programmes for feral cats. Um, but again, it, it's something which people need to think about. The research is, <clears throat> has been done. Uh, many people will say to you, my cat doesn't kill birds or wildlife, and they're right. What we see is that it's about one in 10 cats, which has a very strong prey drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one in 10 are killing those 60 million, in the main, 60 million songbirds. But you know, we do now live in a time where our songbird population is in critical decline, not because of cat predation, but because of the, you know, basically intensification of agriculture, loss of habitat, overuse of uh, insecticides, um, so on and so forth. But so, 
whereas in the past those populations could have absorbed the predation from cats, it would have been insignificant. As those populations decline, its its significance increases, and therefore I think so does our need to be responsible when we when we keep the animals. And so in terms of keeping cats, well, there are there's <clears throat> guidelines that we can follow. Um, if we keep them in at night, we reduce overall predation by fifty percent. Now. Obviously, it may not help our songbirds because they're principally diurnal species, but that it, it reduces overall predation by 50%. And then I think the other thing is that there are welfare issues. We love our cats and our dogs, but we do want them all to live in, you know, in the right place, in the right home and receive the right care and attention. Um, and so neutering programs for, for cats to make sure there's not a surfeit of kittens, uh, which are going into homes, perhaps through habit rather than through want, and where they may not be as well looked after as they, as they might be, is another thing that we uh, should really consider. And I know that some of the charities and some vets offer free neutering, um, which is something that, unless you're interested in breeding your, 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 your cat or your dog, um, that, that we should take advantage of, basically. And I think that should be more widespread. And, and people should think that their, their, their companion animal can live a, a perfectly happy and healthy life. Um, but you don't need to be adding to a population of animals where, where there are already significant welfare issues. We've got, you know, as you know, um, the Blue Cross, Battersea Dogs. I mean, I could go on, the list is endless. Um, where there are many abandoned animals that are looking for homes. And very sadly, we're euthanizing them, which is, mm-hmm. which is tragic. Yeah. I think as um, with lockdown as well, the pet demand has increased, hasn't it? And obviously with that, I imagine the the capacity is reaching its, li- its limits at these various sort of centres. For um, It is. The stress is there. It's expensive. They're entirely reliant on the generosity of their volunteers who give very generously um, because of their passion for those animals. But, you know, we, we, we simply can't find enough good homes for all of those um, good animals. So again, managing their population by through you know neutering where it's appropriate would be one way of, of doing that. But as I say, when it comes to our domestic cats, certainly in suburban areas, I think where sometimes they can have a, 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 a an impact uh, more in a more rural context is obviously when we put new developments close to uh, nature reserves or areas where there, there's wildlife interests, um, and then people move in and they bring their cat keeping habits and their dog keeping habits with them um, they can then have very you know significant local impacts on populations of birds and even things like reptiles um, so maybe we ought to think of um, in some areas we could go as depending on the sensitivity and the species involved we could say well you can move here but if you do you can't keep a cat and that's something that people do in other parts of the world that's quite draconian um, and or we could fence those areas um, so that the cats remain in the in the in the developed area where the humans are living, um, but they're not able to cross over into the immediate countryside where there are sensitive species. So mm-hmm. there, there are always solutions there, and I, I think that we've just got to be exploring those and ask people to recognise that. Um, they need to be implemented sometimes for the benefit of our beleaguered wildlife. I think people need to be open to the idea as well, don't they? Um, to finish, can I just ask you sort of just really it's not a simple question at all, but just like one or two things that people can be doing, obviously alongside with these keeping your dog on a lead, what are some simple steps that people can be doing to make sure that they are keeping the countryside safe? Well, I mean, I think litter, we've touched on litter with the dog 
poo bags. Um, litter is, is significant. I, we still see enormous quantities of litter. I'd like to see some of the people that are responsible for generating the material accountable for it, frankly. Um, maybe I know it sounds fanciful, but track and trace on, on, some, of the, um, on some of the litter. Um, there are certain, you know, fast food, uh, you, you know, uh, what should we call them? So they manufacture it, but they but they sell it. They're proprietors of fast food, and and I find their packaging all over the New Forest all the time. I'm tempted sometimes to put it all in the bin, take it to their their nearest outlet, and tip it all over their floor, and say, "Why don't you deal with it?" You mm-hmm. know. Um, so I think more accountability in the litter chain would be good. Education, when it comes to as you've mentioned, the damage to deer, yeah. we need to keep that up. We need to keep informing people that if you drop particularly plastic um, into the environment. It can end up in the ocean, it can end up in the river, or it can end up inside an animal. Um, wherever it ends up in, in that context, it's not in the right place. Um, so, that, so there is that. Um, and I think, again, it's making sure that we get, you know, public, public goods for public money. Um, some of our uh, publicly accessible areas are not managed as well as they uh, could and should be. Um, and we invest a lot of uh, money in them. We don't have a lot of publicly accessible areas. There's only one other country on earth where there is... Um, more land owned by less people than than there is in the UK. So our national parks are really important to us in terms of access for us being able to go there and enjoy the natural world. Uh, so they they ought to be kept in tip top condition, and many of them are in very poor condition. And 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 therefore, I think that we should put greater demands on on those who govern them to 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 improve the quality of them uh, for humans and for wildlife, of course. Um, so that's that's an, another thing that we should be conscious of we're being shortchanged basically on in many of our national parks um so we um we should ask a bit more from that and then i think it's taking matters into your own hands you know if you have any space yourself if you're fortunate enough to have a garden um then you know give a little of it up to to help wildlife the countryside's a tough place for wildlife to survive at the moment i mentioned the intensification of agriculture and the poor quality of some of our national parks um we can't manage that directly, uh, you and I, but if we're lucky enough to have a garden, we can manage that directly and we can give some space to wildlife and put some nectar in to keep the insects going, some bird boxes up to keep them um, happy and nesting. So any any proactive things you can do yourself would be most welcome. Absolutely. And I think I think we could go on about this for hours and hours quite easily, but I think we'll finish there. But I hope that just by listening to this, people can realise once again that it is just the small steps that we can take together to make big changes so it is and change is the key word that you you use you know we need to constantly audit our lives in all aspects of it and ask how we can move in a more positive direction what opportunities have arisen for us to 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 live more sustainably and harmoniously with the world and when it comes to um, the issues that we've been talking about like dog walking we have to accept that the games change um, from when perhaps you know I'm 60 years old um, I've got my first poodle I've always had poodles black miniature poodles um, best dogs in the world no question about it um, and I got the first one in 1980 and if you look at the the data um, the world in terms of its wildlife has changed very significantly since 1980 yeah. and so I need to change in the way that I look after my my dogs and I don't see that as an imposition I see it as an opportunity and I think that's another key thing we need to look at these um, needs to change as opportunities um, and uh, and to constantly as I say audit our lives and think when those opportunities arrive it's, it's actually a pleasure to take them it's not an imposition it's actually it makes you feel good makes you think do you know what um, I've changed my mind I've changed my practice and I've made the world a better place for 
dogs and birds and people. Absolutely. Well, I think that's brilliant. So I think we'll leave it there because I know we're pushed for time. But thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're most welcome, Charlie. It was an absolute pleasure to be able to chat to Chris today. As I said, I've followed his work for a long time and it was brilliant to have a discussion about a subject I'm so passionate about and so often find myself thinking about when I'm on my long countryside hikes. I hope this will open the floor for wider discussion in the future about how we conduct ourselves in the countryside. But most importantly, I hope the takeaway message from this is just to be more aware of our surroundings and of the potential impact of our behaviour on the world around us. We don't need to make huge alterations to create big change. But as Chris said, the world is constantly changing and instead of dragging our heels and being stuck in the cycle of how things used to be, we need to see this as an opportunity to evolve our behaviours and our attitudes. We can be so powerful if we work together and remember that we are not above nature, we are part of nature. Join me next time when I'll be chatting to another brilliant guest. And as you go about your day today, take a moment to stop. Feel the wind as it breezes past your skin. Hear the bird song high in the trees and remember that you are part of all of this. I'm Charlie and this has been Mountain Conversations.